Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. So I am really, really honored to have these three amazingly beautiful, full of character women. And we're doing a talk about, I want to say breast, so I sound more correct. Most of us say boobs. Um, I've had people in their interviews call them melons. And I hear people like just casually say like tits and feathers. And that word used to make me go, oh, that word is so crass. And now I think the word tits is really fun. I don't know if I'm getting more mature or less mature to think that tits is a great word. Um, but <laughs> we're going to talk about breast cancer because these women have gone through this and they were really brave to share what their experience was because we talked before we recorded how important it is to share this. And my, I myself, like my friend, Anne is on here. She went through this last year and it's like, wait, this is one of my best friends. This is like, you're fine one day. And then you get a diagnosis in your life could be very different than when you thought. And within that year, I think it was four people I was close to had breast cancer. And it wasn't just my age. It was people younger. And I'm like, okay, I am taking my mammogram serious. I did have a mammogram last year that was dense. And so they did the ultrasound. And then I just had one last week where they did an aspiration. They go, if it, they get the fluid out, it's a cyst. If not, we do biopsy. And I, and when we get to your story, I want to talk about how rapid that process goes because I'm making appointments and then, and you don't know, like if it goes this way, here's what happens the rest of your day and the rest of your week and the rest of your whatever of how your life is going along. And this definitely is like a really quick, like whew, sidestep off the path. So I really appreciate you guys even sharing this. And I think this is a sensitive, beautiful topic that needs to be held with respect. And also, you know, there's the absurdity of life of just, you know, if there's humor involved, it's not disrespectful. It's just like, oh my gosh, life is, you're, you know, surprising and absurd. So I would, I'll just kind of start, Leslie, if you would just share a little bit like what shows you did, and then we'll kind of get into later about what, what happened as far as diagnosis, but like just your life as a dancer, like how, how a lot of us know you. Okay. So, um, 15, I left New Zealand to, to study ballet, Scottish ballet school, Royal ballet school, danced, um, at Covent Garden with the Royal Opera Ballet, um, went to Paris for four years in the Lido, um, Hong Kong, uh, Australia. Um, hello, Hollywood. Hello. Yay. And then um, uh, finished off at uh, Jubilee. Um, in between all that, I also freelanced as a classical ballerina um, uh, doing all the lead roles in America and um, also was a bit of a muse for some contemporary um choreographers so so it's been i've had a wonderful career as a dancer and then carried on in entertainment um management um chippendales dance moms um corporate events in vegas um and i'm now back in uh new zealand although i'm english um and <laughs> i keep trying to retire but um but i keep having projects and putting on shows and that's who I am. So, so that creativity has never stopped. It's always been percolating in your brain needs to have a, a way out. I see that's such good, um, good things for us to see. Like when you see old people, you just get a Winnebago and play bingo. It's like, 
oh my gosh, all these women I see that are living and still creating and like we are meant to create. So it's really encouraging to see what, you know, what it can be as opposed to like, I'm just going to get a rocking chair. And yeah. also, I, I, I just wanted to, to say that um, I was a, a principal dancer and therefore I was topless and um, um, did most of the balletic, adagio um, type things in all the shows, had a fabulous body and legs and all that kind of stuff. And now at 71, everything's yucky, but um, <laughs> who cares? I'm still alive <laughs> and doing it, so... Looking at those pictures, I pull my scrapbook and I'm like, damn, I look good. Does this make me happy or sad to know that I look like that? And I don't anymore. Like, no, but I had a time where those legs looked really yeah. good and the boobs were up below the belly, above the belly button. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of a nice thing. Like, okay, I don't get to keep this forever, but you know. It was good while it lasted. It was good while it lasted. <laughs> and the show that we did definitely amplified, glorified in the, in a way, like the beauty of the woman. And yes. so the topless, I, I want to talk about that when we go around again of our attitudes about breast and nudity and all that, because coming from different cultures, it's different, but the whole thing was to showcase the feminine body in such a reverent way, as opposed to tawdry or scandalous. Yeah. It was so, never, um, it was never sexual. It was, it was always just, um, you were, you were apart from the audience, um, and, and hopefully looked up to as lovely person of womanhood. Goddess. Oh. So Anne, can you tell like what shows you did? And Anne was one of my students when she was just an ornery little 17 year old. <laughs> right. And, and as I've shared in past chats, you were who got me my first audition while I was still in high school. So uh, and I, and I landed it. So yes, yeah, so <laughs> that was all you. I, <laughs> I, uh, I was in Jubilee in Las Vegas, um, for a couple of years, 92 and 93. And that's not true. 92 through 94. Um, met my husband there and, uh, got to dance with him for a year before we both left. I, um, I toured the national tour. I, I worked on cruise ships. I lived out in the Bahamas and did dinner theater out there was Radio City Rockettes. And uh, I loved, oh, and I got to perform some really iconic shows uh, at Seattle, in Seattle's Fifth Avenue Theater, the theater I grew up going to as a kid. So um, such an honor to be able to dance on that stage as well. I really enjoy my eclectic career and I've loved just, I loved every aspect of being a professional dancer. I loved the audition to the rehearsal, to the costumes, to the being on stage, the performance, the whole thing. I loved every every minute of it. And I'm super grateful that I had, you know, the, the time I had, which was cut short with an injury, but still I got 11 years out there and it was, it was amazing. Wow. I'm so proud of you. All I can say, I probably taught you head you. Rolls. That's all. I can only take credit for your head rolls. Uh, <laughs> yes, you can take credit for those. Now, of course, I've been to a chiropractor for the past 17 years. <laughs> back then, Chef's kiss. That's a, that's a combination of 80s choreography and wearing those giant headdresses that like, no wonder we're not hanging, our head is just not hanging down to our boobs uh, right now. Our necks are still intact. So Jane, can you tell like where you danced? And Yeah. Interesting about the headdresses. They, I found they were quite lightweight because they were so well made at the Lido. They were, it was the main place I worked with real showgirl costumes and 
because I had to buy one recently because I do a little show now um, as an awareness campaign for breast cancer. And I talk about my life as a showgirl and it works really well. Um, and it's fundraising for a charity. But I had to go to a, trans, um, a sort of transvestite shop in Soho in London to buy a headdress because <laughs> you can't really buy them, can you, really, anywhere else? And a lady that works in the West End said, you need to go to Mr Twinkle in the so in Soho. He'll make you a headdress of your own. So I, I saw this guy and he made me, a, he, I got this headdress, came in a big box in the post and um but it's so uncomfortable and it weighs a ton it's got this big metal cage on my head and it's definitely built for a big chap you know that's gonna do um drag and it's the most horrible thing to wear and you can't move your head when we were dancing we were throwing our heads around with our headdresses on it makes me realize now how really beautifully made they were because you could more or less move around couldn't you unless you had something extraordinarily large on so yeah anyway but my um my dance career started the exciting traveling showgirl career started because I was too tall to be a ballerina I had nine, size nine feet by the time I was size nine is like I don't know 43 I don't know what that is in American but um uh I had huge feet and I was nearly six feet tall when I was 14 years old and so I had to have the news broken to me that I wouldn't be a ballerina really. Um, and But I'd been singing then. So I start, my teacher encouraged me to work in cabaret. So I did go to theatre school. And then my grandmother always used to say, you can always be a bluebell girl, darling. And I never listened to her because I didn't know what, I didn't really take much notice. But eventually um, I found this wonderful world of touring as a showgirl where we have a newspaper in England that's called the stage newspaper and you would get that on a Thursday and find the adverts in the back and it would say showgirls required minimum height five feet eight inches and so I just used to get these jobs and go off to all different beautiful countries and I did probably six or seven years of traveling dancing and singing in cabaret shows in sort of the hotel circuit globally really where they'd have the big shows um in the in the hotels um and it was just like a wonderful dream really of seeing these places especially during the 1980s when travel wasn't as accessible as it is today when you see all these youngsters going off all over the world it, it's it wasn't like that in the 80s to go you know you were lucky to go to Spain from here you know it wasn't so um yeah the travel was the best bit but then my last job was with Miss Bluebell at the Lido on the Champs-Élysées and that was probably the most beautiful prestigious show I ever did and but then I fell in love and had lots of uh, maternal instincts so I had two babies and gave it all up <laughs> But you're right, Leslie, about the creativity still being there. So I did start teaching when my children were tiny. I actually uh, opened a little theatre school and I taught for 25 years. Um, a, a wonderful dance class on a Saturday for all children, not just the elite few that were really good. I had all sorts of um, abilities and and I loved that. And even now I'm, I'm now teaching um I've, I've started a class in my town here now 
um, now that I'm a granny and it's but we had we used in the 70s there was a dance troupe called Pan's People which is very yeah. well known in England I don't know if you've heard of it but I've got Grand's People oh. because <laughs> we've got my ladies are all in their 70s and 80s and we're doing a Charleston at the moment and it's one of the most rewarding classes I think I've ever taught it's such fun there's about 15 ladies come on a Friday and I think keeping that creative flow going is essential for your mental health really mm-hmm. I think when you want to dance naturally it's like wanting to paint or wanting to play an instrument it's just something you need to do to keep your sanity really yeah so, um, you know it's nice to keep that thread in your life isn't it really mm. And we won't go into it now, but I will encourage people to go listen to the interview with you and Diane. When you talk about being, um, we won't go into it now. It's a really good story. They have to do their own homework about being confused for Karen Carpenter and having a gig for the people thought they were paying to see Karen Carpenter. There's many stories about my (laughs) dance career. I got myself into a lot of mischievous uh, little situations over the years but I don't regret any of them no. that's like well the, the interviews have been fun it's like we think we're gonna all have a similar story and then you get going of all the different ways that it took us or all the adventures I found my old um, journal from when I was in Puerto Rico and Montreal and I love it. And there's part of me, like, just to listen to a 20 year old, like figure the world out, like the immaturity. And I'm like, you know what? You were 20 and I'm bored because I just, you know, went to the beach all day and went to, you know, <laughs> it's like, so it's really fun to look back at things I forgot and go, oh my gosh, like every single day was an adventure. And I just was like, well, this just being a dancer. And now I'm like, no, we, you know, the opportunities were amazing. Yeah, they were. So I have a question before, because I really do want to talk about what you've all gone through with, with this diagnosis and the, what happens during that. But what, what was your um, idea or okay or not okay with nudity? Like, cause if I had known at 17, I'd be in a show topless or even with topless people, I was a very conservative Christian. Like I just wrestled and I talked to people that they were fine with it or their mom took them to the audition. And they, and I'm like, wait, what is that like to not have this whole, and it's different by culture. It's different by family because I've been in shows where I felt like it was sexualized and felt gross. And then I had other shows, but I changed over the years, but it is interesting of the perception. And also if you knew who Miss Bluebell was, that might've changed what you thought these shows were, but even within a, f- a family, you know, like in the swimsuit was scandalous to show your belly. And then we end up in these shows coming whichever direction we find ourselves there. So I don't know if you mind talking about that, of what, of what you thought those were or what nudity or revealing parts of your body, having our bum out. So, so for, for me, um, I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about bodies actually don't uh and then when I got um to go to Paris and my parents who were in the Ivory Coast at the time um said oh um the Bluebell girls yes that's that's fine it's 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 a lovely thing um and then living in Paris for six years you realize that a body is a body we all have a body we all have the same sort of parts and um um and 
and some are prettier to look at than others, but but it's not important, you know, it's just it's a body. Mm. And that's kind of how I, how I how I feel about it now. It's it's like a face, you know, it has a nose and a mouth and eyes normally, and um and you can look at somebody's face and go, oh, that's that's really beautiful or handsome or or whatever. And same with a same with a body, but it's a body. It's good to mm. have one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> How else will I get my head anywhere if I don't have a body to get it there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I found in. Uh... Paris, which is mainly where my work stemmed from, even if we were sent abroad somewhere else. The Spanish, French, Italians, they all very much celebrate the female form and the male form. I mean, it wasn't just... Uh-oh, uh -oh, she froze. Her face has been frozen, but... Okay. Mm. Shall I go till she comes yeah, back? Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah. Yeah, she might have. Um, so you know, I grew up in a town called Woodenville. That should be indicative of <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of horses and trees and that kind of thing. So Jubilee, uh, you know, I'd already done a few shows prior to going into Jubilee, but that was the first show that had topless women in it. And I didn't know what to think. I didn't know where to look. Like I this was new to me. I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. And you know, coming from where I grew up, the, the, when you talked about topless women is usually as strippers, like you're talking about strippers. And so I think it was such a great lesson, you know, going into Jubilee. And I mean, maybe it sounds obvious, you know, on this side of it, but entering, I was 22 years old going into Jubilee where it was like, um, these women are so normal. <laughs> it's like, they're so they have kids and some are in school and one loves horses and she's raising horses. You know, they just happen. Their role on stage happens to be topless and they're wearing the gorgeous Bob Mackie costumes and me covered. I'm running around like a mad woman doing all the choreography and they're just a standing statuesque and gorgeous. I mean, they're dancing too. Don't get me wrong, but you know, they're, they're just, it's celebrated. It was, it was a really great lesson for me. And, um, I learned a lot in Jubilee in that respect. And, you know, I left there, um, just like, yeah, man, you've got it. Show it. You look gorgeous. Put that costume on, get that spotlight mm. on. I loved it. I yeah. think that was, that was another reason why I went topless was, um, because, uh, it was a way to get into the spotlight. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I've heard there's some people to be principal. That was how you do it. So they had to wrestle with that. Like, do I want this and have yeah. to be okay with it? Because that's, well, I think all the principal, I think Kate Vanderlee was the only one I know of that, that was a principal that wasn't topless. Right. At least in those shows. As I win is after doing the shows, I, I was working with a youth at a church and they had a, they, when they interviewed me, they said, well, part of the job is you get a free trip to Greece. Are you okay with that? I'm like, <laughs> yes. And so they said, they told the kids who were very conservative, like we might be in topless uh, beaches. And that's just, and, they, and the parents were like, oh no. And the kids were like, the boys were like, yes. And in their mind, they thought it was going to be naked Baywatch. And there was one girl, two boys. And we went and it was naked volleyball with old people. Just picture old people jumping for the ball and naked and having so much fun. And the boys were just like, no, 
was just like, it was so funny because it was just so casual there. And they thought it was going to be this peep show and then go, oh, all naked bodies, not just 20 year olds. But it was just this, the culture was so different as to be, there, Jane's back. <laughs> I lost the internet. Yeah. <laughs> you were, your face was frozen, but you were still talking. It was interesting. So Anne oh. wins. So kind of we'll come back to you as far as like the attitude towards, especially like culturally, oh, yeah. like country. So, or... Yeah. So um, yeah, they celebrated the female form and the male form. They just celebrated bodies really. And uh, in that show, um, I don't think the Mediterranean culture have a, a a problem with nudity and I don't blame them really. I think the shows we were in were so beautiful and so tasteful and uh, stunning to watch that. And nowadays, you know, when you see some of the uh, dance videos and things that are on the pop scene, they're so almost vulgar, some of them. And you think, well... You know, it's, it's, I was proud to be in those shows, really. I didn't, and also I think as dancers, you're so used to, you have an athletic body and you're so used to just leaping around and being uh, uh, comfortable in your skin and not really having a, a problem with nudity, which is probably why it was, certainly for me, um, made me more aware of my body when I had breast cancer and, and noticed a change and that something wasn't right. So I'll always be grateful for that, really. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, the, I, the difference is because in Britain, we don't have showgirls shows that are as sophisticated as the rest of the world. Our showgirls, so we have we do have a few, but there's a lot of lap dancing and table dancing and topless dancing in shows. And, and sadly, that's the only thing British people kind of know, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's important to um, realise the difference because um, Bluebell's shows were world famous for their beauty and um, class. <laughs> one of those things really isn't it yeah I don't bother trying to explain to people in mm -mm. <laughs> I did have I had a relationship with uh, an American in the 80s in Tokyo and I was head over heels in love with him and then I was at a dinner with him and one of his colleagues said what are you going to do when you leave Tokyo because I was only 22 or something I said oh, I want to go and work at the Bluebell girl show in Paris when I go back to Europe and he he said, I'll never forget it. He had this horrible grin on his face, and he said, "Oh, I I think they're topless there, aren't they?" And um, I and I just said, "Well, some of them are, yes, but it's very much part of the show, and it's a beautiful thing." And the boyfriend I had then, the American guy, he was horrified, and our relationship failed miserably after that. Oh, really? I was probably better off without him, but I was. It's wow. a much more detailed story. <laughs> <laughs> Our but next it, part two. Yeah, it's just attitude, isn't it? And um, mm. how people see things, really. And I don't uh, know how it is in other countries, but in America, like when I was in Paris, you see new, you know, the, the art, the statues, there's just beautiful statues nude. In America, that, well, now you see what's happening all over our country of banning books and thoughts. And But I feel like, but we use boobs to sell hamburgers, cars, staples yeah. everything is like everything is like it has nothing to do with the product but that 
to me sounds like exploitation as opposed to like being on a stage where it's art but it is interesting that the um oh my gosh what's that word when you're hypocritical of about nudity if it's if it's art but if you're using it to sell something then it's very (laughs) just advertising you could talk a lot about it really that's a very big subject to talk about isn't it yeah so I would love to hear whatever order you want to share of what it was like, you know, going along your life and what got you in to get an exam or a mammogram, you know, if it was just routine, but if you would mind sharing and also what that process was like, because for me, I thought, well, if that is what my diagnosis, then I need to research. I was afraid to look at too much and freak myself out. Like if that happens, I know there's resources, but also if you Google something, you you think you're going to die the next day. And, um, yeah, so whoever wants to go first and just what that where you were as a stage in life too, to have this inconvenience come in. Okay. So my mother died at at 49 of breast cancer. Um, so I saw her go through the end of that. Um, and she she left it too long. Um, she found a lump, didn't want to say anything about it, blah, blah. So, um, and my paternal grandmother um, had a breast removed. So I've been really good about uh, getting mammograms and I sort of figured that I was through it now. I'm 71. And, um, uh, and in New Zealand, actually, the, the funded uh, mammograms stop at the moment they're talking about it right now but stop at 69 so anyway I was uh, moving and um, so I went into my doctor to to say hey I'm I'm leaving town and I'm going to need you know my all my info to go to another GP when I find one up in Auckland and um, uh, so she looked at my record she said oh it's been a couple of years since you've had your mammogram and because you're um, you have a family history, you know, you still get them on the, uh, as a freebie. But I said, well, I'll pay wh- whatever because of the past. And um, so anyway, the clinic knew that I was leaving. They fitted me into a cancellation, um, uh, called me that same afternoon and said, um, hey, can you come in tomorrow morning for a, an ultrasound? Um, I went in for the ultrasound. He said, yep, looks pretty much like breast cancer to me um, and took a biopsy there and then, four biopsies. That's so mm. uncomfortable, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, um, and then um, results came back, sure enough, um, small. Um, the doctor got onto it straight away, did the referral through to um, my new city um, and but 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 and and I was I was in (laughs) so I was moving packing unpacking traveling um did a show and then two days later I was having this um this cancer removed so it's been it's been quite um interesting and fast and furious so but Hey, it's out. The first I go for um, the post-op consultation where, where they say um, going for radiotherapy, whatever, and, um, uh, and hormones. 
and all that sort of thing. So I'm right in the middle of finding out more. It's been interesting. Um, I was just saying before that separating sort of myself from, from the breast cancer thing and, and reading on it and, and that sort of thing, the whole the whole process has been sort of interesting as well as kind of scary. Yeah. So when it happens that fast, I don't know if that's good. You don't have time to get too many thoughts in your head or you just have to go with it. But what, what was going through your head to get this diagnosis? And if you haven't had time to even freak out or calm yourself or whatever, like, cause that's such a whirlwind with this huge news. Yeah. But I think, um, quite honestly, um, uh, it was because, it, because it was fast and because it was small, I went, um, I just, my cold thing took over and just said, okay, let's get this whipped out as fast as possible. Got a lot of adventuring to do. Can't die. Just, just get there and do it. Yeah. I, wow. I, I'm not one to panic. Hmm. And how are you? Like we talked a little bit before we recorded, like how you're doing now, like energy and cause that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot that your body has been through. Yeah. And, and as soon as, as soon as I came through the operation, I had a, um, a candlelight concert in Auckland where I am um, with uh, three ballerinas and a, and a quartet. And I'm looking after the, the dancers and the costumes and choreography and stuff. And mm. then I had to um, fly down to Wellington for another one two days ago. Um, uh, so I've been, I've been busy with the stuff that I do. And also, um, but at the same time, dealing with not having much energy i i just feel i want to sit around and do nothing and, and yeah. read which is very unusual for me i'm always up and about yeah that's the only thing really huh. but and so you nervous exhaustion because you i think the mental side of it is bigger than you let yourself realize Possibly. and that's probably the fatigue is is nervous exhaustion because there are certain periods of that whole phase where you don't quite know how it's going to end and I think it's really really draining but I'm like you 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 get on with stuff and you think well let's get on with it and you have to keep jolly for the rest of the family because my biggest challenge was being jolly and telling loved ones was so hard that was harder than anything and I worded it so carefully and just sort of got a nasty little little lumpy thing they're just going to take it out and then I'll um so that's all you know but I have another friend who uh, I met during the time and she sat her whole family down and said I've got cancer you know and actually once you've had a lumpectomy, more often than not, you don't have cancer. They've removed it. And so I urged her not to do that because it's so hard for her kids to cope with that. And and you don't, unless it happens to you, you don't really know, you know, the big C word is so scary to people. But actually, you know, the awareness and doing what you did, Leslie and, and Anne and me, we, you know, we spoke up as soon as we had any inkling there was a problem um we got rid of it and i think the more we talk about it cancer there's about 400 different types of cancer apparently i mean 
you know, it, it's every uh, breast cancer as well itself. But generally nowadays, if you're early enough, it's very unusual to not survive a, a tumor in your breast. But um, that's a bit of a sweeping statement. I know there are all sorts of different um, illnesses of breast cancer and, and people have a tough time. But generally, I think we need to sort of um, urge each other and lean on each other to go and seek advice if we're worried about anything. And But I think you're going back to what you're saying with your, you've been so busy, Leslie, and that's so nice to keep focused and keep getting on with stuff. And you look so well, but that tiredness thing, I'm sure is just the deep rooted um, nervous exhaustion and putting on a, a brave face and carrying on because that was so hard for me. And I would go and sob and sob and sob in private and um, and then be all jolly going down to dinner and making the dinner and being all chirpy in front of the kids. And um, that was hard. But the actual surgery and the chemo and stuff was easy compared to that bit. It's, uh, so it's Jane, like, how did you find out that you had that? How did, what got you in to follow up and see what was going on? So um, I, um, I noticed one breast was uh, sagging, which is quite normal. A lot of women have one sagging breast or one bigger uh, than the other, but this was a new sag and it was, um, it, it just looked wrong. But I joked about it and said, oh, look, I'm getting older. I've got a saggy boob. And I, But then when we were in the doctor's surgery with my husband's knee, I think, we were there for something else. And I said, oh, by the way, one of my, can you just look at my boob? And he took, I'll never forget his face. He took one glance. He said, we definitely need to scan that, my dear. And um, he sent me in within the week. And uh, I was, I had the tumour removed two weeks later and uh, it was as you said Leslie you don't really have time to think of it. it's so fast uh, which is good really um, but the waiting for the biopsy results some hospitals is two weeks and that was hard I just remember watching old videos for two weeks because I couldn't bear to think oh she's frozen or she's in deep thought I think she's frozen again <laughs> oh well, when she comes back on, we'll, we'll, we'll go a little bit more into that. And do you mind sharing your experience? Uh, yeah. Um, no, I mean, no, I don't mind. <laughs> you asked <laughs> me my said yes to this. No, I so don't getting, mind. Okay. We're going to go to Anne, then we'll come back, Jane. Um, yeah. I, my family there, we didn't have, nobody in my family had breast cancer. I think it's like my mom's aunt's daughter, somewhere like over there. So I, I was the first person and I have a sister. So now she gets to check that box, immediate family. Yes. And so that's, that's kind of a bugger, but, mm -hmm. um, but mine was, you know, around, um, annual mammograms I had gone in and, uh, they had found dense tissue and wanted me to come back in a year. And it was also interesting too, because it was the smaller of my two breasts. So I was like, that guy's fine. That guy's not going <laughs> to that guy's fine. But, um, but because COVID hit, it, it was longer than a year. It was like a year and a half or maybe even closer to, you know, year and three quarters. And, uh, when I did go back in, um, talk about things happening quickly. So, you know, from the mammogram, they walked me right over to ultrasound and from there, 
yes, we have something that we need to biopsy. And it was just a few days later that that biopsy happened. And, um, and then I had to wait for the results over a weekend. I knew that they had been posted in our digital chart from the hospital, but I was warned to not go look. And I'm really glad I didn't because I would have revealed to myself that I had cancer without having, you know, a doctor explaining it to me and talking to me about it. So, um, so once I, once I had that, when, once I got that positive diagnosis, um, I, I was kind of floored. Like, I didn't really, I don't know what to say that you do think it's not going to happen to me. I get mammograms. We do this. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's fine. And then you get that news. And, uh, you know, I was, I, I was at a loss for words, which is rare for me, but I was. And uh, when I found them, they, I shocked myself, like the cry that was accompanying my questions was shocking. Cause I I'm just in the middle of my work day. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just working. So it was, um, weird to hear my own self react like that. And I had a, so I met with the surgeon and I had a trip, my husband and I, cause in April, if maybe it's like this in England as well, but, um, April's really quite depressing in Washington state because you've just gone through all the winter gray and wet. And now you've gone through the, now you're in spring and you're like, surely the sun will come out soon, but no, it doesn't. It stays behind the clouds and it's still just drizzly. So we flew, we're going to fly down to, um, Palm Springs for, you know, a little vacation, get some sunshine. And so I was asking the surgeon, you know, I'm like, how dire is this? Like, can I go? Cause things have happened so quickly to get to this point, you know, can I go on my vacation? And she's like, I can't even get you onto my schedule for like another 10 days. So yeah, go on your vacation, enjoy it, re relax and, uh, you know, come back ready for this. So, so that's what I did. And, um, and I had my lumpectomy. I had some, uh, nerve issues that were excruciating. And it doesn't seem like long to say it now, but I was at least 10, maybe even almost 14 days of nerve pain, severe nerve pain to my nipple. I don't know if it, something got nicked or what, but it, when you stand as straight as you can with your shoulders pulled back, if you relax just the tiniest bit, it would send, it would send a shock as if someone was like lighting me on fire. It was awful. And so, you know, I go back into the surgeon and she's like this, I don't know why this is happening. We don't have clips in you like this, this shouldn't be happening. So, you know, I'm crying because, you know, I, I don't want permanent nerve damage. This is my life. This is, this is pretty excruciating. So she, she's like, let's just let the swelling come down. You're, you're, you're only a week out or whatever I was. Let's let the swelling come down. Let's let, you know, we're going to, before we start talking about nerve medication, let's just kind of keep an eye on this. So thankfully, whatever that was, 10 days, 12 days, whatever that was, there was a turn and the swelling went down enough where that pain was gone. And I was like, Phew. I mean, I was so relieved because it was excruciating. It was day in, day out. It was insane. So, um, so, you know, when you're in it, you're just doing it right They're They're, they're hustling you through, you're doing the things you're supposed to do. So this year is the year marker. So March is when I had, you know, a year ago today, I was diagnosed. April was a year ago today. I had my surgery. It's this year that I found myself very emotional where I'm weepy over it. And I, and I don't know if it's just because because when you're in it, you're in it. You just got to get through it. You got to get that thing out of you. You're doing whatever you can to move forward. Mm -hmm. But then there's this point where you're like, wow, like it's been a year already. And this is where I was a year ago. 
it was so, you know, so scary and, you know, telling your family and friends about it. I didn't do a really great job the first, I had to learn with each person. Well, that's, that's not how you tell somebody you have cancer. Like I did, I was like, that, that was wrong. Sorry. Okay. So I had to like fix it as I went from person to person. But, um, but yeah, in, you know, in retrospect, you know, coming up this summer will be the year anniversary when I started radiation and radiation therapy was very tough for me. Like when I stood at the door to walk in, I was like, I am willingly bringing myself to get radiated. Like it did, like it, it didn't make sense in my head. I am willingly walking in here. They're going to radiate. Yes. The tissue that was removed, but you know, that area, but also like healthy tissue. And it just felt so wrong. And I stopped at the door and my nurse's name was patience. What a great oh, name yeah. because I start crying. So she takes me back and sits down with me and she's like, we'll wait as long as you need. I mean, we'll wait as long as you need. And it was so sweet and it was exactly what I needed. And, um, wow, was I thrilled to get through that, but that year anniversary is coming up and like right now I'm getting choked up thinking about yeah. it. because oh, It was hard. Yeah. It was hard. An interesting thing, actually, Anne, to uh, know, my mother was like you, my mother had breast cancer when she was 60, so that was 23 years ago, and um, she refused the radiotherapy, radiation, but her cancer came back a mm. year later, mm. so, yeah. you know, it was good you did it, and it is hard, and harder for some people, <laughs> I just went in and said, yes, whatever you think. <laughs> I was lucky. I was very relaxed about it. But at the same time I was having my treatment, my best friend Hannah had a brain tumour and she was fighting cancer. We were both fighting cancer together and she lost her fight. Mm. And I now, since my recovery, I just feel so lucky to still be here and Hannah isn't here and I miss her every day. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it makes you realize how precious our lives are, you know, and, and and really important to enjoy every single day because we are so blessed to be here. And, you know, it's I don't think you can really realize how precious life is until you think it might be taken away from you. I don't think you right. ever see life again the same after you've had a brush with breast cancer or whatever type of treatment you have. I don't think you ever, uh, you know, if I get a big um, electricity bill or something or some, the usual things that drive you crazy or you worry about, you step outside the box much easier because you think, well, we'll manage because it's right. just rubbish. You know, mm. it's not the real thing. And and to, I remember being so mixed up emotionally and almost almost angry with other people that weren't ill. <laughs> yeah. I thought they're so lucky they're not ill. They don't realize how lucky they are that they have we take for granted. Yeah. And and how sick were you with 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 the radiation? Because I would see you kind of in between, but I know for some people it wipes them out. And I know between chemo and radiation is different how your body adapts, but how how was that to go through? Well, it was interesting because I, um, my work leading up to my diagnosis was, um, too much. It wasn't sustainable. I was two years COVID happened, but my business was exploding. I, um, 
I'm a project manager in commercial furniture. And I had active job sites across the country that I was managing from afar. And so it was uh, too much. It, it was too much. I was working 12, 14 hours a day. I'd wake up at two in the morning with thoughts and things that I needed to do. And I would just come down and work for a couple of hours and see if I could grab a nap until I was really supposed to get up. Like I was out of control, but it needed to be done to keep these projects going. And so to me, uh, this cancer, it corrected, it righted the ship. Cause I, I was, uh, I mean, I, it, something was going to end up happening and it did mm -hmm. because of the rate I was working and the lack of sleep and all the things. So I was exhausted. And, and, you know, after the lumpectomy, of course, with the nerve pain, that's tiresome. And then with the radiation that does zap your energy a little bit, but I think it was just even more elevated because really I'm, I was trying to recover also from the past two years of chaos. And so, uh, it took, I, I took Lee, I had to go on leave. I, I was like out for four months and, uh, it was, and I didn't actually feel you know, people think, oh, you're on leave. You're getting your nails done. You're out there like getting, doing your hairs. No, 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 no. I was, I was sleeping when I could, it, you know, it was, it was tough. So it wasn't until maybe the last week of my leave where I felt human and it was trying, you know, it was time to go to work. Now I have set some incredibly firm boundaries now at work yeah. and have shared it with my leadership and they all understand and they're supporting me and what I'm doing. So that's fantastic. I, I don't know, you know, if it wasn't cancer, something else was going to happen to me because it was just too much. It was just, I was worried about you. She's my dear friend. I remember worrying like in that is you kept thinking, well, maybe when this person comes on, but then you had to train that person. So I felt like there was no reprieve. Yeah. So this is it watching somebody you love go through this too. Cause I remember going, like we went to hug Anna at rehearsal, like, no, don't touch me there. Cause like it's the tenderness, but then also like you know, when you're going through yourself, there's one thing, or if it's someone you love, like, oh, I might not have this person in my life. Like it's, and it's hard to grieve. You don't want to grieve like, and don't go. Cause you're going to leave me. So it's a <laughs> weird thing to how to be supportive. And like, do you talk about it or not talk about it or let them talk? So it's, we just don't know how to navigate these things very well. So I think as friendships, you learn like, how can I support you? How do I not pester you? How do I help more? Cause I just like, we're not very educated on how to be supportive or to ask for help. But I was so happy when you were taking that time off and that you didn't fill it up with things because I'm like, I was worried and I'm like, okay, if rest is the most, the thing you need the most, then I'm so sad. It was that to do it, but I don't know if there would have been a way you would have just said, I'm not going to work for four months. That's right. I mean, the, the radiation oncologist was even, he was saying, you know, there's no need to, you don't have to miss work. You can just pop in at lunch. And I was like, no, I, I can, I will either work or I'm going to rest and heal. I will not be able to do both with this current job. And so it was incredibly important for me to take that time off. And, um, like I said, like, you know, I've got I've got BC before cancer and PC post cancer. And there are very different, there are different things. I'm doing some different run rules now and things, things have changed. Things have changed. Mm. And I can't run myself into the ground like that ever, ever, ever again. I can't. Yeah. It's and sad and it's realistic that we have, that it takes something pretty scary to make us go, this is my life. This, this is, yeah. How do I want there it is, to? There is a question of, um, you know, people do it sounds like you were having a really tough time be, 
before you got diagnosed, Anne. And so many people have said, you know, they got it after a, a big divorce or a, a trauma or something or uh, years and years of anxiety. So you do wonder if there's a link, but we don't know. So just as a, a rule, it's best not to overdo it, I suppose. But mm. Well, and you you said something before we recorded too that you you felt something that was kind of not right, but yeah. it confirmed what you already were feeling. Because I think you know, as dancers, we assume we're in our body, but you know, a lot of us can pull muscles and feel things and not even feel. And some of us are really sensitive to when something shifts. So, what was that that you verified when you got the diagnosis? Like, oh yeah, I was noticing that. Yeah, it was because of course I was shocked to get the diagnosis, but then when I really thought about the area where the tumor was it had been feeling like a, a bit of a pinch, like inside of me, like I could feel like a pinch happening in my right breast. And, you know, of course, cause this is what humans do. I'm like, ah, it's gotta be that time of the month. It's just, well, it's something, but, but really when they did the biopsy and it was, the location was at that. And when, when the lumpectomy happened, that pinch sensation was gone. I, I must've perceived whatever was happening I, so I had some sort of perception of it. That's yeah. such a perfect example of of speaking up if you have anything, isn't it? Because yeah, it's so crucial that you that people do say something if they're worried about anything. But you're right, we don't we don't. Uh, it's like ah, uh, yeah. Except for mine was the other because I had to wait so long in between the mammogram and the aspiration. So then everything is like, oh, is that it? wait, was that where the lump was? And all of a sudden I'm feeling everything was like, oh no, that might just be, I worked too hard on gyro today, but it was like, all of a sudden I was hyper aware of thickness and like, you know, like, because it, because of COVID, I've heard a lot of people had to wait a long time. Yeah. So you get this diagnosis and there's nothing to confirm it for a while. And what your brain can do in the meantime is either go pasha or like, oh, my whole body's, I mean, it's just what the brain can do with that kind of news. And with, so I with that question. pause that I had, oh, sorry. With that pause oh, that I no. had, I was, you know, because I had, it was slow growing, s- caught early. It was all the air quote, right things that you want your cancer to be if you have it so that, it, you know, you can do the tamoxifen, all the things that you would want if you have to have cancer. It was all those things. But I also was running through my head. I waited a half a year to three quarters of a year. What if it hadn't been slow growing? What if it had been an aggressive cancer? Where would I, where could I have been? And that's, you know, that's the flip side. That's yeah. the next place that yeah. you're going to go. So it's like, no, you ladies need to have their annual mammograms. You just have to do it. It's it, treat yourself afterwards, whatever that is. If it's a mocha, I don't know, whatever it is, but get yourselves in on a regular basis because the early detection is literally the key. It's yeah. just so important. Yeah. So I have a question too. It's interesting because I'm a massage therapist and I've worked on several women that have had mastectomies. And if you, you know, we work on scar release because that scarring, even from a biopsy, you know, or a lumpectomy, because that, that fascia will start to pull down and pucker and change. And so it's a, you know, like if they're willing and they want to have some scar release, we have conversations about it. And I know one woman who had nipples tattooed on her. And there's a, an artist in Washington that does this because his wife had breast cancer. So he had this tipple, tipple, <laughs> nipple tattoos that look real. And so for her, and some people have artwork, but I, it made me really think like, I lost my breast. What do I think about them? Because when you're in the shows, you know, even if you're not top of the show, you're backstage, your boobs are always looking at you in the mirror, you know? And so like, what do I think about them now that they're not part of my <laughs> living? 
And so to think of losing one, like, what do I actually think of my breasts? Is it like they're only relative when they're 20 or when I'm nursing or when you're older, like, eh, I could do with or without them. It just made me realize like, well, do I, what do I think if I was going to not have them? And I don't know if you guys went through that of what do these mean to me? Like even wearing clothing and bras and all that stuff, because we did have ours way more obvious in our life than most women probably do (laughs) thinking about your breast. I don't know. I, I, at this stage of life, I'm important. Just get rid of whatever's, um, you know, not supposed to be there. Um, I remember my mother, okay, so she was, she was 49 when she died, um, saying, because she had double um, mastectomy because it had gone so far. Uh, she was really upset about it and, and feeling like she wasn't a woman without the breasts. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I'm so gonna... sorry for you, Leslie. That's so that's young, too. So hard for you. That's very young uh, for her to die then. It must I, was, be... I was at the Lido at the time, and um, they were in Jordan. Um, probably tougher for my brother, who's six years younger than me, because mm. I was 25, but he was still at school. So oh, sad. Wow. Yeah. My mother had it at 60, and she had one removed and the other one was a voluntary she asked how the other one removed because she had quite big breasts I definitely didn't inherit that I've always been very flat which is great for dancing but uh, my mum was quite well endowed and she had one large breast and then her flat scar so she had the other one removed especially when she had the recurrence in the sternum because she didn't have radiotherapy um it freaked her out and she'd just take the other one off as well. And, and, and I look up, my mum lives with me now. She has dementia and she's like a little wounded soldier. She's got these great big scars on her little chest now. And she, I, when I put her in the shower and she's just such a little brave soldier, <laughs> I look at her, you know, she's lost her memory. She doesn't know who I am anymore. And she just, she's such a darling and she's so smiley and sweet about everything. But I just see her little body and I think, poor little thing, you know, because they're quite big scars um, across her, two big lines, you know, and um, I, I think. I wanted mine taken off when I was faced with the word count that I had a tumour. I just wanted them both gone. And they said, well, we would have to send you for counselling first and it will delay the treatment because you have to be put on a list to have the counselling before we can take. And they kind of talked me out oh. of it. And they did say, you know, these days that's very drastic to do that unless there's a real need for it. And it, the treatments are so sophisticated now that it's very unusual to need mastectomies. Mm. Um, probably if you're early enough. Yeah. I had an interesting thing when I posted, you know, on I posted on Facebook after I had gone through my surgery and was encouraging women to have the mammograms and kind of sharing my story. And also, you know, wanted to be there for anybody who maybe was getting a similar diagnosis or was waiting for their diagnosis or whatever. And people, you know, there are other women who reached out to me about their experience. And, um, many of them had mastectomies and, 
Yeah. Um, we're, yeah. And we're sharing, you know, the, the, the drain, the port, all these things that I did not have to encounter with a lumpectomy. And there was a weird, almost like a sense of guilt is too strong of a word, but we're creeping up on it that, that all I had to do was have a lumpectomy. Yeah. Right. Where like where these other women, yes, they had to have their breasts removed and all the things that go with that. And to what Sherry's question is, you know, what do you what what do you think about your breasts and what does it mean to you and your body? And, and so, you know, there were parts where I was like, you know, obviously I'm grateful, but you know, I also kind of felt kind of felt weird. I kind of felt like, I don't know if it's like survivor's guilt or just a little bit of like these poor women, you know, they they had something bigger than me. And uh, I don't know. I don't, it was a really interesting, I, I surprised myself to be feeling that. Remember you said that and it feels like, well, then you have to minimize your pain and trauma right. because it's not as bad, which we do that with yeah. like, compare, you know, like my husband killed himself, but then it wasn't as bad as that one. So my pain must not be valid enough. And so it is like you experience what you experience. You experience the trauma, you experience the pain, you experience the like, needing to take work off, whatever, but having to tell your friends, like you still went through it. And I think to minimize it because it doesn't compare to worse is like yeah, a disservice for what unique. you went through. Everyone's unique in what they've coped with, aren't they? And they, I don't think you can compare really, can you? It's like um, whether or not to have reconstruction or just to have your scars. Every woman is all oh man, men have breast cancer. Right. Um, well, you know they um but uh, for women to have reconstruction i think that's a very personal thing and um it's hard to compare you can't there's not one simple answer to that really mm. is there um I, and i i did buy so many i thought i was going to have double mastectomy at first and i bought so many different uh bras and and different things to i was panicking about what i would do afterwards and of course, now it's all behind me. I just think, what was I thinking of? You know, I, um, I, I just, I suppose it's just a, an insecurity and a, a worry, isn't it? A panic that of your identity, maybe, mm. of how you see yourself afterwards. But so, yeah. I have a question too, because you have shared your story. And it's probably cathartic in a way. What what has that done for you to share it? Because sometimes it's a burden because everybody will now, while you're still trying to heal, tell you their stuff. So sometimes you're holding yours plus, but also just even hear each other because it can bring up the emotions, like the things that you might want to push away, like to feel the grief again or to feel like, okay, someone understands it. But what has it done? Because you've all shared it and you wouldn't have come on here if you hadn't. I wouldn't have <laughs> asked you to do that. But what has that been for you to, to just openly say what you've been through? Well, I, th I think, um, uh, one, so, because we have a, a, on our Facebooks and because of, of what we've, because of our dancing and, and the people that we know all over the world who, who are our, our other family, I'm alone, so it's pretty much my family, um, somebody would find out about it and the word would, would go out there. So... I felt like you guys did that um, once I once I had had the operation, just to 
in fact, I think I said that in, on my Facebook thing, just so you know, this has happened and um, I'm fine. It was small and then went on to talk about other, other, other stuff. So um, I think that was, that was fine for me. And I had told um, uh, just a couple of, of other people just because they were, they would realize that something was wrong or, or I wasn't gonna be there for a couple of days and what was going on kind of thing. So I think that's why more than anything else is, is just so that, that <laughs> you know, Leslie's not dying of cancer kind of thing. Um, um, I'm perfectly fine, this has happened and let's, uh, and let's just carry on was my thought process. Mm -hmm. I think for me, uh, sharing it is, you know, when you're going through it, you are alone. You're the only one on the gurney going into surgery. You're the only one getting the buyout. You're by yourself. You know, my husband works in a hospital setting. So it, I went to the hospital that he worked, but he's not there with me. You know, I'm by myself. You have to do this by yourself. So I think sharing, you start to hear other people's stories. You don't feel as alone. I mean, and in one way it's bad because that means there's a lot of breast cancer out there. But on the other hand, it's a shared experience. And if we don't vocalize it or type it or whatever, there might be somebody who's just, who's by them, you know, going through it by themselves and really feels like an island and, you know, doesn't, doesn't maybe know that there are, there's a whole network of people, men and women who might be able to just, you know, I'm an expert in my experience. I'm not an expert in Jane's or Leslie's experience. I'm an expert in my own. So I can mm. give like my two cents, but if nothing else, I can be just the ears. If you want to tell somebody that's not your family, that you're not going to, you know, upset your family, you can tell me, you can tell me, cause I've, you know, I've been there. And I think that's the piece of sharing that I would like to continue to um, get the, get out there, get that word out there is that it's helpful. It's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I agree with that completely. I think you two have done so well to talk today because I remember, I think two years after my treatment, I was still very tearful about it. And I could now because seeing, you know, hearing your stories and, and bringing it all back. But I've had, um, you know, it'll be 10 years next year. Um, and so that's a wonderful thing for me. And I, I've kind of life carries on and wonderful things happen again. And, you know, you start to feel happy again. And, and uh, so, but I did, my writing helped me because I just wrote about it all. And the awareness campaigning, which I turned into a bit of a warrior at first about spreading the awareness. And I've raised a, bit of money towards um, some cancer centers we have locally um, in the nearest city. And uh, that's been something to focus on. So if I ever think about, if I go into that deep sort of memory of what happened, I just take myself to my fundraising and my um, writing and speaking to lots of people about it because it's the only thing I feel I can do really, apart from try and keep, I don't know if keeping fit and avoiding 
bad foods and things makes any difference because you always have a fear of recurrence for the rest of your life to be mm. honest but you kind of learn to try and find a relaxation calming sort of anti-anxiety where I yoga works and walking I love walking and and you know things to keep me calm so I don't um get panicky and worry about it coming back because actually anyone can get it any day you know it's we're all susceptible to it and there's mm -hmm. so much breast cancer out there when I go to my talks it's usually about 60 women they're these sort of social groups that meet up when I go and talk about my experience and um half the room have had breast cancer you know it's so statistically it is so so much more common than we realize because um people don't talk about it and that was hard because it's it's so true you feel like you're the only person in the world when you get diagnosed you think no one else has got it and I couldn't find the only I tried to find books of people's experiences and they were all rather sad the endings the ones I could find it didn't help me at all and so you know it I think Facebook's really exploded hasn't it I mean it, and Instagram and social media has become such a communicating platform now that you can find out so much more in 2014 we weren't ahead like that I don't know if Instagram was a thing in 20 10 years ago I don't know when it really came out I'm a bit behind the time I'm a bit old-fashioned slow to get these things anyway but I do think social media helps a lot with finding out um other finding other people that are coping with mm. it and you see people in so many people coping with quite nasty illnesses and you realize you're not alone mm. I have to tell you I have to tell you a funny thing because um you know I'm I'm a I'm a performer and have been all my life so I, I did this I did this um uh, show it was called an honest conversation two days before I was going into the hospital um, and um, it's improv for an hour dancing and talking about whatever comes into your brain really interesting thing wow. to do and I, and I did it with um, a, a young colleague um, Bjorn is uh, 25 <clears throat> and um we you we start by introducing ourselves and then whatever and dancing meanwhile and whatever comes into your brain you talk about and you can say I don't want to go there um or whatever but after a, we, we had a little bit of a lull and we were just doing contemporary you know stuff leaning on each other and I went <laughs> this is in front of an audience and I went I have breast cancer and I'm going to have an operation on Wednesday. <laughs> and I think you could hear a pin drop. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. And um, he, he sort of stopped and hugged me in a dance way. <laughs> oh. And, um, but what I'm I said was, it's small, thank good for mammograms. And now, and then I went on to, uh, then I went on to, to something else. But I went, Bandy, this is, you're so weird. <laughs> out in a, in a performance. But it came into my head and I went, 
bleh, just sort of like no. good. Good. That's, that's beautiful because you weren't editing you were I feel like some like I don't want to I don't want to upset people and as women we're kind of conditioned that like I can say this people can take care of themselves they're usually okay yeah. but like to get that that is I wish if there's video let us say because that's so beautiful like you got and then you move on I just I know like after my husband died um it's been 15 years but my daughter had a, a person who's a bit older who's kind of helping her, mentoring her through that, who had also lost her dad. And so this was like two weeks after she goes, well, I guess you're part of the dead dad society. And we all went, oh, you can't oh. say that loud. She goes too soon. And we're like, yes. <laughs> so oh. then it was like, and my daughter cried about that, but then it was a few months later. She was like, okay, yes, I am part of that. Like, it's not a society you want to be a part of. Like you're part of the breast cancer survivor. Like, no, thank you. But then when you actually get to have some healing, like, oh, I'm part of this community that's been through this of women that are badass. And if they cried through it, if they screamed through it, they ignored it. Like you're part of this, this, I want to say family more than group that you wouldn't have chose to be in. But I don't know if you feel connected with people. Like when you've gone through something, like I never wanted to call myself a widow. I would like, I would say single, not widowed. When I actually honestly click that box, I'm like, I am a widow. And then I connect with other widows in a way that, that is just unique to us. Like it's a language or it's like we have a similar accent because we, we walk the same terrain. But I don't know, like when you talk about it, if you feel like you're part of something that's a family in a different way that just gets you in a way that nobody else will. It does help to talk to other people that really understand what you've been through, doesn't it? Yeah. Which is. Um good thing to remember you look around and everyone's got things they're coping with haven't they exactly yeah there's a lot of trauma in the world but there's a lot of joy in the world as well yes on to those more if you can <laughs> yeah and you yeah i'm sure you think they're more sacred now that mm. so as we end and you guys touched on this but knowing that your life is not guaranteed forever and you and you actually but uh, right against that of what that was like how has it changed your perception of your life or what what not just say what was your lesson I think that's a little too cliche but when you've been there you probably do see life your life particularly different knowing that it's it could have not been here okay so for I think from Jane's come up Okay, um, uh, for me, it was, um, oh my gosh, get this thing out of here because I have hopefully another 20 years of adventures and, and creations and projects to get out there. That's it, go. Yeah. See, you got things to do. You don't have time for this. Yeah, I don't have time for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm 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 a bit annoyed more than anything else. Yeah, <laughs> it is annoying. That's it funny. is annoying. It's super <laughs> annoying. <laughs> Get this annoyance out. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I I just feel grateful, really, that I I'm still here, and mm. um, and I treasure every day, especially times with family and friends and enjoying beautiful sights and and uh 
lovely places. Just get out there and enjoy it, isn't it, really? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it was a huge shift for me with work because work became the number one priority and everything fell to the wayside, including myself. I was, you know, I, I gained a bunch of weight. I mean, it was just, I was so unhealthy. So it was a huge pivot for me and I'm, I'm 53. So like I'm working very, very hard right now to, um, to get that, that weight back off of me that I had collected over those two years of chaos and to, you know, make sure that that we don't, my husband and I don't wait. We don't wait to do, let's wait and do X, whatever it is. No, let's go do it. Let's go do it. We yeah. do have our health. It's, you know, such a wake up call. Um, as I shared, he's in the hospital. So he sees sick people. He works in, in um, the OR. He's an anesthesia tech. So he supports the anesthesiologist. So he sees very sick people all the time. And as our age goes up, they're more our age. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we're like, we can't wait. We just have, if we, if we have a, a thought and an inkling and a thing, we got to go do it. We have to, this is it. This is our life. This is what we have. We have to continue to move forward with it. And I've always felt that life is a collection of experiences more than belongings. Like I've always been experience oriented versus anything else. I will take a show that pays me a hundred dollars a week because of the show or where it is or the experience I'm going to have. I don't, I don't, I never really cared about the money. I mean, I needed it because I had to eat and stuff, but that that's the part. That's the thing right now that I feel very energized around. It's just making sure that we just, we just don't wait. We got to mm. do it. Ladies, thank you so much. I know that that was probably more vulnerable than we sometimes do in interviews, but I really appreciate your, your grace towards each other as well. And just sharing your heart. And if women find themselves and or men too, are there resources or is it just find a friend and talk or find a community? Is there any, cause I feel like there's way more resources now. Don't Google only and find out <laughs> things that'll freak you out. Yeah. Go to your doctor and yeah. you're worried about anything. There's and there are resources at hospital. Like the hospital had, I had a whole book of all kinds of stuff that I was given when I went in. So there are resources, a lot of them and great websites that you should be able to get to through your doctor, whether it's your oncologist yeah. or, you know, the, there, there are a lot, there's a lot out there because okay. sadly it is so common. So you can um, go online, can't you? You can go online, but you just need to get the right uh, website from your exactly. doctor. Like say, and, and then it is all there, isn't it? Yeah. And, mm. and write down write down questions um, that you have yeah. so that so that you you get as much information as as you can about your particular um, mm. challenge and don't be afraid yeah. of a second opinion of getting a second opinion yeah. I got a second opinion around my radiation treatment like, there's nothing wrong with getting as much information as you can so you can truly make an informed decision because you are also emotional. You want to, you want to check that emotional decision because you are emotional. You just received that yeah. diagnosis. So don't be afraid of a second opinion. Collect the, collect the info. Mm -hmm. All right. I expect to see you guys here a lot longer. So uh, Leslie, when you're 91, we'll get on, we'll find out what you're creating. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys have to keep going so we can do a follow-up in 20 years. Okay. Best to you stay healthy. And thank you again thank for, you, for sharing thank your you. lovely hearts for your tatas, your boobs, your melons, your tits, your breast. Are there more names for there? Is there more? Jugs. 
jugs. <laughs> Ladies, to you and your jugs. Oh. Be well forever. <laughs> I bid you adieu. <laughs> um.